This criminal or maniac Smith is a very genius of evil and has a method of his own, a method of the most daring ingenuity. He is popular wherever he goes, for he invades every house as an uproarious child. People are getting suspicious of all the respectable disguises for a scoundrel. So he always uses the disguise of, what shall I say, the bohemian, the blameless bohemian. He always carries people off their feet. People are used to the mask of conventional good conduct. He goes in for eccentric good nature. You expect a Don Juan to dress up as a solemn and solid Spanish merchant, but you're not prepared for Don Juan when he dresses up as Don Quixote. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Grace. And I'm Marie. On today's episode, we are discussing the fifth chapter of G.K. Chesterton's comedic novel, Man Alive, which is called The Allegorical Practical Joker. Grace, how are you and what are you drinking tonight? I am so good. Um, I'm drinking lemon tea again. Uh, just, we, we tend to be recording these late at night now, um, my time at least. And so (laughs) I've already had a glass of wine, so I'm, you're, you're winding down for bed. I know I'm ready for tea now. So yes, our schedule has been quite different lately. Mm -hmm. Well, my, my mom made this delicious, um, I don't know, Asian broth and, um, with all my tummy issues and stuff going on lately, the broth has been really good so um thank you mom that's great i don't don't think my mom listens but thank you mom (laughs) shout out uh my mom loves uh asian soups like uh like a wonton soup every time Mm. she's sick that's what she always wants i love it i love i love Mm. thai soups Mm. yeah it's just so cozy yeah and the ingredients are all really fresh and it makes you feel like you're having something very wholesome Mm. um So I'm so happy to hear you filled me in right before we started recording that your back is feeling a lot better. Um, Yes, I've been dealing with some. It's a it's a long story I won't get into for uh, you listener people out there. But um, I have a lot of really dumb back pain, um, really kind of severe back pain that pops up every couple of years in a bad way. So I've been in physical therapy all week and feeling really great now um which is a pretty quick turnaround at least quicker than normal so I'm grateful I'm so glad um I have been working a lot we are having lots of changes at my work um I don't know if I mentioned last week that one of my coworkers is moving to Texas so he's leaving our um, Catholic Answers which is really sad because he's been with um the apostolate for seven years almost wow and everybody loves him and he's just like a wonderful guy and really good at his job and everything so um we're all kind of (laughs) doing like we're doing goodbye things for him we had a lunch for him today and then like also we're trying to figure out who's going to do his position once he's not there anymore so if you're an audio engineer and you're listening we're looking for an audio engineer um but um I've just I'm been grateful because I've had a lot of really interesting conversations with people this week um, because of my work. And um, those of you who are listening and aren't Catholic might not know that it's the year of St. Joseph. Um, So we could get into lots of the questions about saints and things like that. But um, we think of the saints as our friends and as intercessors who can pray for us. And so this year we're especially focusing on the life of St. Joseph and what a holy man he was. And as the earthly father of Jesus, just the impact that he has on all of our faith lives. So um, I had a really interesting conversation today with a woman about the early, the early church fathers and what they believed about St. Joseph and um she was insisting that St. Joseph must have been 
a consecrated virgin like Mary was. Like we believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And um, the early church didn't really believe that. And I told her there's nothing to be upset about if we know that he was a holy married man. Because one of the strongest arguments is that he was a widowed man when he married um the blessed mother so anyway i was like i think it's actually really encouraging to hear about such a saintly person who was married because most of us are married and trying to achieve sainthood so absolutely anyway it was a fun little conversation to have um yeah. I think it's so funny, too, is like all of these, um, you know, media, Catholic media outlets. And, you know, here we are talking on a podcast and everything about St. Joseph. Um, but St. Joseph is known, of course, for his silence in the Bible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I just find it ironic and funny. And I feel like he would find it funny as well. Yeah. So Yeah, he definitely. There aren't <laughs> there aren't uh, too many things even about St. Joseph in the Bible, but we know that if he was selected to be a part of the Holy Family, he must have been very, very special. Yeah. Um, what have you been reading? So I haven't really been reading anything different than I talked about last time, um, but I am just so overwhelmed with gratitude, especially this past week as I've been kind of working through my back issues, which again, kind of popped up out of nowhere after a long two-year hiatus. And um, it was kind of discouraging for a while. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so grateful for Lord of the Rings because it is just this story of struggle. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I've been the two towers right now. And a lot of that is just the story of Sam and Frodo, like off on their own, like trying to get to uh, Mordor. And it's like just really rough going and relatable um in in a completely different way uh Mm. but the grace that is made present in their story um is also relatable in again a different way and so I've just been eating it up it's like the perfect Lenten reading every year for different reasons so I don't think I'm planning to stop that tradition anytime soon that's awesome um yeah every time you talk about it you make me really want to restart I have a few things that I'm trying to finish but after I'd like to reread those books again um that book again which has Mm. been split I I did buy (laughs) or actually we were gifted as a wedding present um the uh the Hobbit and then the Lord of the Rings in the split into the three books Mm -hmm. Um, which is nice because when it's all together, the binding is so large that when you bend it, you actually do a lot of damage to the binding Mm -hmm. because it takes a while to get through that book. Um, but I really need Tom Bombadil in my life (laughs) again. And I really, I need some, yeah, I, it's such an encouraging, um, life giving story. Mm -hmm. And as you said, so relatable for our own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember if I mentioned before that I listened to it um, on Audible. I don't read it. I've never actually read it on paper. Um, mm. I've only ever listened to it. And Rob Inglis is a guy that did a recording decades ago. Um, but the recording is amazing. He sings all the songs. And so yeah. like, when you say Tom Bombadil, I'm like thinking about his song in my head. Yeah. Like, it's just playing. <laughs> so That's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I, if you can find a good version of um, the audio for Lord of the Rings, it is, I, I find it really fun and helpful. For me, I see, I prefer to read a book, mm-hmm. like to look at the words than to listen to it. Mm-hmm. But more recently, I've been finding that listening and reading has been really enjoyable for me. Um uh, there's a this side note. There is an amazing, amazing um, audiobook of Persuasion by Jane Austen mm, I on I Spotify. It. And it's um, I think her name is Cynthia Erivo. She's the super talented um, English actress uh-huh. and Spotify hired her to read the novel. And it is captivating. Wow. I just like I, it's one of my favorite Austin books anyway. It was what I did my thesis on in college, and nice. I like to reread it every few years. But I just really enjoyed her, basically, performance of it. It was just, I couldn't stop listening to it. So I would recommend that. And actually, Spotify put out 
I think nine audiobooks last wow. summer and all of the actors that they chose to do these books are just fantastic. Um, That's good to know. So yeah, I would check that out if you have Spotify, which you can have a free version and listen to these. It's definitely worth it. Um, recently, David and I have been like slowly, slowly working through Fantasties by George MacDonald nice. in the evenings. We'll read like just a chapter or something. Um, and we don't even do it every night because life has been crazy. But I admit, I love George MacDonald. Um, the Princess and the Goblin is one of my favorite books that I've ever read. And I read it as an adult when I was teaching it to one of my classes. Um, but Fantasties is not striking me in the same way that the Princess and the Goblin did. It seems a little bit more random and all over the place, but we're only about halfway through. So I will reserve judgment. And when <laughs> we finish it, I will give my review. Um, I would love to hear it. I've never read yeah. anything by George MacDonald. I've just heard good things. And I have recently yeah. downloaded The Princess and the Goblin on Audible for whenever Lent is over and I finish Lord of the Rings. So it is so good. It's such a good it's probably my favorite fairy tale. I um, George MacDonald just inspired so many of the writers that we love um, like both Lewis and Tolkien both loved um george mcdonald and like all of their contemporaries would have read him too right and he really did inspire a lot of their love of fairy tale and um, myth and fiction and mm -hmm. so and he was also you know a man of great faith so okay well we <laughs> we should probably get into <laughs> get this book um we'll discuss this chapter Dr. Pym and Dr. Warner explain to the group that they have many documents and memoranda which incriminate innocent Smith in numerous other similar crimes. They tell a dark story of Smith hypnotizing and kidnapping unsuspecting young women who have never been seen or heard from again. All of the tenants of Beacon House are shocked and appalled, and Diana rushes off to break the news to Mary Gray in an attempt to save her. Mary Gray, however, reveals that she is fully aware of Smith's past adventures. She even seems to think him hilarious and continues to insist that they must be off in their cab to be married. Among the stunned and exasperated group, only Michael Moon is quiet. He lounges against the garden gate and listen, listens attentively to everything being said, especially to everything spoken by Mary Gray concerning Smith. Just as doctors Pym and Warner are about to drag innocent to the cab, to bring him to the insane asylum, Michael Moon suddenly snaps to attention and refuses to let them pass the gate. He declares that Innocent Smith should not be tried at any court but the High Court of Beacon, and he defends his position by appealing to everyone's individual insecurities about bad press and scandal should they make this case immediately public. Just then, the hilarious Moses Gold shows up in a refreshingly optimistic mood. With his help, Moon is able to convince the crowd to try Smith in the house. And just as they're about to head back inside, Smith jumps in the cab and runs it around the, all around the block a few times. The doctors think that they have let him get away, but Moon is still convinced that he is innocent. As everyone returns dejectedly to the house, Smith comes roaring back up the street and submits peacefully to Moon's proposed court proceedings. Smith, while leaping back over the garden wall, is questioned by a frustrated Inglewood, who has now been half convinced by Moon that he is simply an allegorical, practical joker. Inglewood insists, however, on knowing Smith's real name. After uttering a shower of random, silly names, the frustrated Inglewood exclaims, But man alive! To which innocent Smith responds joyously, That's right! That's right! That's my real name! And book one ends. <laughs> I like can't help it. I was almost laughing as I, I was reading the summary. I know. I I was typing this up and going back through this chapter the other day preparing for this episode. And I was cracking up. Like how many times have I read this book now? I don't even know. Probably five. Yeah. And yet every single time I laugh out loud. I know. <laughs> It's honestly, too, it sounds so bad, the history that they're giving of Smith. Right. It's terrifying. <laughs> he's possibly made all these women disappear. Like, he's seduced them and then made them disappear. And then there's, you know, attempted murder and all of this, all of these accusations that are quite awful. 
but the fact that he rides the carriage around the block and then comes (laughs) back for the court proceedings kind of says a lot yeah oh so funny i like this dr pym character like what (laughs) what was your first impression um i think my opinion was kind of uh, affected by the fact that I'm married to an English person <laughs> and I know what the English think of Americans. <laughs> um, but he's just ridiculous and he seems like this stiff, kind of uptight, too excited, but kind of boring at the same time yeah. character. Um, and he's just so sure that he's right. And yeah. he's just given himself over to this research about innocent. And he's he's got a sense of justice, I guess. Like, uh-huh. I mean, and if he thinks these things are really true and that they really happened and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, great. Sense of justice. But, um, yeah, he's he's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. I, I laughed at the part where he said that he was wearing a big bow tie as if a big American moth had alighted on him. <laughs> but um just like his the way that he like holds his fingers together and like squints his eyes and like it was funny how he takes everything really seriously but it's just the fact that he takes everything seriously that he's able to even take michael moon seriously right right (laughs) so he like randomly ends up being the or i should say like ironically ends up being the one who allows the court case to happen in the house instead of yeah going off yeah to the insane don't did they describe him in this chapter or the next as closing his eyes often while he's speaking i think it's this one yeah and Um, that just cracks me up too because it's like don't get me wrong. I've I've loved professors who have this uh, habit, but yeah. I think it's hilarious when people close their eyes and talk for a long time. I just, I find it to be kind of disconcerting and sort yeah. of distracting. <laughs> I had a professor <laughs> like that too. That's so funny. It's like, I adore you. I know you're saying something very important, but yeah. um, can you make a little eye contact right now? So <laughs> I, he definitely seems like he maybe takes life a little too seriously because, mm-hmm. but yeah, you, as you said, it works in our benefit in this case because he thinks of this court as, I guess, being a real thing and allows it to go into the into the house. Yeah, I thought the commentary on like, I don't know, Chesterton's commentary on him being so American, like the the fact that he's able to take this whole idea of the High Court of Beacon seriously mm. precisely because he's an American and Americans have like created all sorts of like um political structures and things like kind of out yeah. of nowhere in his mind. Yeah. <laughs> they have this independence of spirit that yeah. allows them to not go by the book necessarily. Right. I think it's one of the things that Chesterton actually did appreciate about Americans, but from the trips that he took, which were many when he would lecture in the U.S., I don't think he or Francis ever desired to stay. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they think adored so. a lot of the people that they met and, like, made some close friendships, but I don't think mm-hmm. they were attracted to the American way of life necessarily. Yeah. The one thing um, that I do remember reading in that biography of Francis is that she got really into Notre Dame football because of meeting yeah. Newt Rockney and then like yeah. continuing conversations with him about that, yes. <laughs> which I thought was funny. Yeah. But the part where it uh, talks about all the different American like rules and regulations and how like they're so different from state to state like made him able to understand these like crazy rules of the high court of beacon. And it lists like, um, let's see. Uh, on the other hand, Cyrus Penn belonged to a country in which things are possible that seem crazy to the English regulations and authorities exactly like one of innocence pranks or one of Michael's satires really exist propped by placid policemen and imposed on bustling businessmen. Pym knew whole states, which are vast and yet secret and fanciful. Each is as big as a nation, yet as private as a lost village, and as unexpected as an apple pie bed. States where no man may have a cigarette. States where any man may have ten wives. Very strict prohibition states. Very lax divorce states. All these large local vagaries had prepared Cyrus Pym's mind for small local vagaries in a smaller country. I was just like, hmm, what are the states he's naming here? Utah? Right. <laughs> Where else? There are still some really funny laws 
I don't know. You'll see articles go around every once in a while. Like, yeah, it's I'm making this up, but they are as ridiculous as this. Like, you can't carry a chocolate ice cream cone with a donkey over the state line. Like, <laughs> who yeah. came up with some of these laws? I think it's really funny that he uses an American as like a um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, Like as a tool here. Yeah. In yeah. order to allow some of this preposterous goings on. And it's like, I love it. <laughs> I know. I do too. We're American, but I, Whatever, it's funny. I still funny. appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. So I don't know. I th- think maybe just like I kind of want to go back a little bit to the accusations here. Yeah. Because like you mentioned, they were pretty, pretty rough. Um, and Dr. Pym is claiming to have paperwork on 18 to 20 crimes of this nature that Innocent Smith has apparently, uh, committed thus far, which, you know, we're kind of talking as if like he is innocent and maybe he is, but like the fact that there are apparently documentation for this many and no one has ever found these women again, like that's kind of scary. (laughs) Kind yeah, of it's, it's very creepy and it's concerning. If it's yeah. true, it's very concerning. Yeah. I think I think that the the fact that I don't know, it's it seems a little fantastical to me that mm-hmm. Dr. Pym happens to be with Dr. Warner when Dr. Warner is called to investigate um innocent and that you know, he's finally traced him after, you know, investigating all these different crimes. And, um, but are like these accusations, which we're going to learn a lot more about them in detail in coming chapters, Mm -hmm. like the actual evidence and letters and things will be presented. Um, but yeah, it, it's disconcerting and it feels as disconcerting as when the gun is, reveal or you know when first when they find the gun in his belongings um in the luggage of the optimist chapter and then when he fires the gun at dr warner mm-hmm. it we start to think what this, is this man unhinged <laughs> yeah i mean and not even that but he fires it you know inches above his head like through his right. hat you know right. his hat was on his head it wasn't as if he like fired at the hat on the ground or something yeah. like that yeah. so so crazy the one of the things though that is i i find comforting in this chapter is that when mary gray is presented with the evidence or the so so-called evidence um she claims to know about his past and seems completely unconcerned and still wants to go and get married mm-hmm. so that tells us that there's a second side to the story that hasn't been told mm-hmm. that has to be presented mm-hmm. um and it's really hard for me right now not to just start talking about the, <laughs> the next chapter or the, you know, know. The, the actual trial. But I anyway, know. I kind of want to like hold it in the tension, though, you know, because it's like we it's like in that moment. I remember vividly when I first read this book and I really was not convinced that he was innocent. Like I wanted him to be innocent. I wanted him to be good. Um, but I was like really thrown off and so for me I guess like my first reaction was to go like when Mary Gray starts like defending him or just kind of like laughing it off like to me it was almost like this is really dark like this is getting really dark really fast like who is she like has he hypnotized her like what is going on like (laughs) I don't know and I wonder I don't know I think that there's probably more commentary that I want to bring out as we go on and as things are revealed but um I think we can have, so say if innocent is, is innocent and he actually is good and there's some sort of trick or there's some sort of joke, right? Um, How often do we, or maybe people, other people think of God and what he does throughout history and how he acts in the world and his presence and things like that? as this sort of like, I don't know, foreboding or like ominous or like 
is he hiding around the corner to mess something up or I don't know if you're following me here. Like, um, I feel like sometimes we can, we can feel like God is oppressive or something. And like, if I follow him, then there's something that I'm going to lose of myself or there's something Mm. that I'm going to be like, maybe he doesn't actually know best for me. Maybe he's got this mysterious other plan. Yeah. Or there's this, you know, cause there's a lot of within the Christian faith, there's a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, like suffer, like suffering, Mm -hmm. redemptive suffering and the cross and, and all these things. And I think sometimes, um, we can, kind of get caught in that darkness thinking that like there's this somber like God is very somber or solemn or Mm. like dark or like brooding you know or something like that but in reality it's like God is I don't know I think in Chesterton's mind God is more like a child who Mm. is delighting in all sorts of things and is actually kind of shouting down the darkness in a way Mm. Um, I don't know. These are just kind of raw thoughts floating through my head right now. But like he's not waiting and watching us to try to catch us doing something wrong or trying to. It, it, right. Yeah. No, I definitely I get what you're saying. There's like this undergirding like light or like yeah. life that is like underneath this this dark looking atmosphere that we're experiencing, yeah. you know. Well, he Anyways. is joy and he is love and like incarnate so Mm -hmm. that makes sense I think Mm -hmm. that Christian artists have tried to capture that over the centuries when Mm. they so often depict um, Christ as a child Mm. or Christ as a baby like some of the favorite icons that we have in our house are Christ depicted as young like Mm -hmm. very young Um, and it's yeah, there's a there's an echo of that in innocent, like mm-hmm. this this wisdom and this knowledge of that because innocent does have wisdom and knowledge. I mean, he's not um, unaware of the mm-hmm. world or what's in it, mm-hmm. but he also has this like very childlike joy mm-hmm. um, that exists in perfect harmony alongside mm-hmm. that that experience and that knowledge. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I think I just related to the characters in this chapter, like the tenants of, of the boarding house, particularly like Inglewood and um, Diana Duke and Rosamond, where again, like they want him to be good, but Mm. they're now they're hit with this accusation and they falter for a minute and are like, Oh snap. Like, is he actually like this evil genius? You know what I mean? Who's actually like really bad and like actually here to oppress people and Mm -hmm. here to whatever. And I think that sometimes as, as Christians, as people like, or at least myself, I know like throughout my life, there's been sort of a, a tension or a temptation to think of God that way when, you know, people who don't know God will suggest like, well, or point to things, you know, in scripture or in history or whatever and be like, well, how could a good God like this, mm. that, or the other thing. Mm. Right. And, and just being able to like relate to that tension of the tenants right now, like not knowing for sure, yeah. but like having a hunch that he's good and like yeah. wanting him to be good, but like not knowing how to prove it or express it or, whatever I don't know and I think yeah I think you're getting at something really important and like just as with God um wondering how God could allow or even end the life of someone or you know whatever difficult thing that somebody struggles with when it comes to God and God's actions um I don't think even at the end of the story, and I won't be specific enough to ruin the end of the story, but I don't even think at the end of the story I've ever completely understood Innocent and his motivations for everything and why he does everything that he does. Mm -hmm. However, um, I am convinced about something of his nature by the end of it. I can trust that what I see of his nature is true. Yeah. By the end of the story, even though I don't completely understand it. And I think that's something that we, I don't think, I know that's something that we experience with God is that 
I I cannot completely understand the everything we see of God in the Old Testament, especially. Right. I can't understand everything that I've seen of God in my own life. Sometimes I ask him why he's allowed certain things to happen um, or allowed me to experience certain things um, or allowed me to just mess up, you know, as like, <laughs> yeah. why did you give me free will? Um, <laughs> yeah. But but I have been convinced of the goodness of God and I. Right. And I feel like that trust in his in his nature and who God is um, in the end is is more important. But we've not been convinced of innocent yet. And he's not God. But there there are whispers of is he an angel or is he a devil? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So it's hard to discern in life sometimes. Like, is this coming from God or is this coming from somewhere else? Right. (laughs) You know? So yeah. interesting. Yeah, the the mood really changes with all of the characters as it's like their balloon is popped mm-hmm. and they're deflated. Um Yeah. At the same time, I feel like it's it's reasonable because these are really serious accusations, but right. his behavior in racing around the block in the carriage, I feel like it proves several things. First uh-huh. of all, that they don't have to completely let go of what they thought was true about him before mm-hmm. because he did something silly again and then came back. Yeah. And a, an innocent man would come back because mm-hmm. he wouldn't mind being tried for things that aren't true or accusations that are perhaps incorrect in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it also just shows them that the fun that they've been having the last day or so is not all gone. Yeah. You know, he kind point. of like revisits the fun again. Yeah. Cause I, I'm just, again, putting myself in the place of these people and it's like, okay, they just have all like proposed to each other because innocent has proposed to Mary Gray and well, not because, but like it was sort of, you know, a catalyst for them or whatever. And yeah. so they've found this great happiness and thrown all sorts of caution to the wind and everything like that. Um, but if everything, if innocent is their inspiration and they suddenly find out that he's actually evil, Mm. um, then what does that mean for what they've all just done? You know what I mean? It could taint or destroy everything they've decided to do. So again, you just kind of feel that like anxiety shift. Yeah. But like a, like held in, yeah, I keep saying that word tension, but just like this this whole moment of their life is like on pause they're like frozen yeah. in time and they're like what do we do you know yeah. <laughs> or like how are we yeah. understanding this you know so and michael again seems to be the one who is kind of not talking not jumping to conclusions listening yeah trying to figure something out i think he more than anybody is convinced that innocent is good this whole time I think Mm. maybe for a split second, he might have been thrown, you know, but he pretty is he's pretty steady, I think. Um, And he's also the one that notices that the whole time they're standing there arguing about where whether or not they should try innocent Mm. in the house. um, He's like, guys, he's been standing here this whole time. And they're like, what? And they like totally forget that he's just been like sitting there listening to them, just like hanging out, not saying anything. They even said that like a bird had like landed on his shoulder like he was a garden statue or something like yeah. that yeah yeah so yeah that's really interesting mm. I think it Michael Moon strikes me as like one of the apostles or something in this scene huh. yeah because um I don't know I was I was thinking today about the Canaanite woman who um has the conversation with Jesus and he basically says like I wouldn't give the scraps to the dogs yes yeah and she basically like has this great faith and like begs of the Lord to have mercy on her and he does yeah and um I was just reflecting on how that might have seemed to whatever men were with him like, mm-hmm. I don't remember which of the apostles were with him at that time. Yeah. But um, that would be disconcerting. 
to hear your master, your Lord, to be so unfeeling and gruff with someone. Mm-hmm. And like he was teaching a lesson by this experience. And he was also in the end, like blessing her great faith and, right. you know, giving her a gift in the end. But it's a confusing conversation. Yeah. And Michael Moon is sort of like, I don't know. I, I just think they had been they had been through enough with our Lord to trust him even when they didn't understand something that he was doing right um as as with like someone who you might know in your life who's holy like I consider my mom to be holy and like she may say or do something and now she's not the Lord so she's not perfect she could do something wrong but right a lot of the time I might not understand something she might say or do at the time but I trust that my mom is a good person and I trust that she's like driven by what she thinks the Lord is calling her to do and I trust Mm -hmm. that she wants to do good and so I don't know I think in this situation Michael is like he has um, trust and innocent that maybe the rest of them didn't establish as deeply but he he knows that there needs to be a further conversation about this, but he has seen that goodness. And I think he's more convinced of his goodness and his innocence than anybody else. Yeah. Like he can have this confidence in him. Yeah. Yeah. Just you talking about that um, remind me of two things. First of all, a a similar passage might be um, the bread of life discourse. Mm. When at the end, Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. The Jews are like, you know, what the heck, Jesus, that's crazy. We're out yeah. of here, you know? And yeah. then Jesus turns to the apostles and he's like, y'all going to leave too. And Peter says like, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And I've always seen that as like Peter, like you said, has this established relationship with the Lord. Like he may not understand what the heck he's saying or what the mm-hmm. heck he means, but like he knows Jesus and he trusts him and he knows that he's good. Yeah. And so he must mean something by it that I don't understand. So there's that humility. And I think Michael Moon has that humility, um, which mm. is kind of funny because he seems to be kind of a prideful person when we first meet him, but yes. he has this sort of underlying humility of recognizing that this guy in a way is smarter than I am, or he's got something going that I haven't quite figured out. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to follow that thread. I'm going to trust a little yeah. bit. You know, I um, yeah, I see Christ figured in innocent mm-hmm. and I think we're meant to like as you yeah. saw that joyful um, element in innocent that I think we see in the Lord as we come yeah. to know him better. Um, there's there is. It does take humility, it does take trust in order to really get to know this character. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. Humility is hard. <laughs> Yeah, it's harder. It's clearly <laughs> harder for some characters in this story than others, for sure. And um, yeah, so it's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. I need to use a different word than interesting. <laughs> I'll be well, looking at my this Yeah. Um. I I think uh another thing that popped in my mind when you were talking about specifically that interaction that Jesus has with the Canaanite woman, Mm -hmm. um, the way that I've always personally been able to swallow that story is imagining the conversation happening with Jesus and the woman both having a smirk on their face. Mm. Um, Interesting. I don't know if you've ever read it that way, but Jesus explain what you mean to me. So, so the woman coming to Jesus, you know, and, and begging him. And he says, what is the line? Um, uh, it's wrong to take the food of the children and feed it to the dogs. Right. Isn't that what he says? Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of imagining him almost like kind of like looking at her with raised eyebrows, like, Oh, you're like coming to ask me, even though you're this Canaanite woman and I'm this Mm. Jewish rabbi and whatever. And so he's almost like, kind of like, Oh, interested, like, cool. Like this woman has like faith enough (laughs) to come to me, you know? And like, she says, you know, begs from him and he says like, 
like, woman, don't you know that it's, you know, wrong to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs? But like with a smile on his face, a smirk on his face, like raised eyebrow and her saying like quipping back. I mean, she's witty when she comes back. I know she has a quick response. Yeah. And she says like, but Lord, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, I almost see them as like, like her like knowing him and trusting like his heart somehow like her having this insight that's into really who interesting he is and him like kind of having this conversation with her that like maybe nobody else around them quite mm. gets or understands but like they get it and understand each other I don't it's know. that's yeah I I've never thought about it like that before but it kind of shows us like that the Lord not only does that it's from Mark, right? Mark three, seven or Mark seven, seven. I don't remember exactly the verse, but, um, that verse speaks to everyone who reads the scripture, right? Like everyone who has read the Bible and has reflected on that passage, it is teaching us something, but it also shows us that like this encounter was just for her too. Mm -hmm. Like he knew what she needed individually and like he cares about us all that individually and, you know, tailors his care for us um, based on who we are, based on who he's created us to be. That's really interesting. I've kind of always thought about that passage more like um, a pauper coming to a king and asking for something Mm. like above their station, kind of like it's like it's inappropriate to for a pauper to burst into the king's supper and ask for something that they have no place being there in the first, you know, in the first place. And then, you know, they're demanding something from a king. Um, but I, I like the way that you think about that. It's, it's a passage that I reflect on often and I feel I learn something every time I think about it and, um, read it again. So, um, What do you think about their choice to hold the trial at Beacon? (laughs) Man, I don't know if uh, my practical nature would have allowed for that um, in reality. (laughs) Um, In the book, I'm cheering them on, you know, and reading it, I'm like, come on, Michael Moon, like just... The whole description of him just like going from silence to snapping to attention Mm. and grabbing the like broken fence post that Inglewood had noticed before and like saying like the, what did he say? Something like the, um, like the fence posts or the very columns are jumping to war or something. What did he say? I don't. Oh, yeah. Um, Shall I die in defense of this sacred pale? Will you paint (laughs) these blue railings red with my gore? And he brandishes it and he says, uh, the very lances round Beacon Tower leap from their places to defend it. There it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In such a Uh, place and hour, it is a fine thing to die alone. And then, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, I just that whole speech that he gives is so good. And I love how he calls out um, their willingness to believe the word of these two doctors based on no actual presentation of, um, of evidence, right? Like they say they have the evidence, but they won't explain the evidence you know, um, and so it, yeah. him demanding that is, I think that's why I'm like, wait, yeah, yeah, we should yeah. see the evidence, you know. It's kind um, of, int- it's kind of, it is a, a unique situation because it feels like Dr. Pym and Dr. Warner are like coming in as the parents, catching the children, having this like rowdy good time, and they're kind of trying to put the kibosh on things. Mm-hmm. And you know, Michael helps them remember that they're all adults too. And these two men can't just like tell them all what to do. Right. You know, as you said, it's like, you know, they haven't presented any of this mentioned evidence and they do need to present evidence if they want to take away a man and possibly lock him up for life. 
Because right. that's what they're suggesting. I mean, their accusations could change the course of innocence life in a really serious way. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I like I like that um, a little bit of the energy comes back and the children uh, kind of stick up to their mm-hmm. to their parents in this situation. <laughs> yeah, the part where he said. Um, my people came from Ireland and were Catholics. What would you say if I called a man wicked on the word of two priests? <laughs> Just calling out the the kind of double standard here that like, um, I don't know. It, it was funny when I was typing these notes. Um, I just had a conversation that same day with one of my colleagues at the high school where I teach. And he said he was having a conversation with his church history students about faith and science. And they were talking Mm. about um, just like theologians and scientists and theology as a field and science as a field and, you know, all these kind of things. And like um, he was saying, you know, if I had a scientist or a theologian in here and they made some claim about something like who would you trust? And they were Mm. like, well, the scientists. And he was like, why? You know, <laughs> and he very was kind of re- yeah. revealing this, um, this kind of, uh, prejudice almost. Yeah. Yeah. Pre- a prejudice that we have. Um, we kind of take science as if it's a sort of all knowing discipline where yeah. it's like, yeah, science is great. And science can, uh, reveal a lot of truth about the universe and the world around us and stuff like that and has, but it's not perfect. But yeah. we take it as if it is, you know. Well, and science um, fl- flows forth from God. Right. Like God yeah. created all of this and gave us the minds to write science books and to do experiments and to find yeah. out about our world. Yeah. And I think yeah. what he was getting at and what I think Michael Moon is getting at is that, um, well, let's see the evidence. You know, there needs to be a yeah. rational argument. Uh, both yeah. in theology and in science, there needs to be um, something that can kind of get at the truth, you know, and allow us to actually work through it ourselves um, and not just take the word of whoever because they seem smart, you know. Yeah. Sorry, I also I'm find just it reading. hilarious. Oh, that's okay. No, go ahead. I also find it hilarious that he decides to make Mrs. Duke the Iron Duke, the um, <laughs> the judge of the court. Right. And Diana's like, listen, if you're going to make her the judge of the court, she's just going to be like, whatever about everything. And he's like, exactly. <laughs> this is uh, not on accident, ma'am. Yeah, exactly. I love Mrs. Duke, though. I feel like she starts to come alive a little bit in being treated respectfully as the head of the house like she's still this kind of like non-character in the background Mm -hmm. who's snoozing throughout but she does deserve their respect and she is the lady of the house so I do like that um yeah it's interesting that um I'm not gonna say that I noticed that um, Dr. Pym is approaching all of this and Dr. Warner with this deadly seriousness mm-hmm. and with Michael's help, Inglewood and Michael and innocent, obviously throughout are treating it in a much more lighthearted way, which makes me think that they, um, they both believe in his goodness enough to get through whatever is going to come in this trial. Um, and the juxtaposition of the seriousness versus like the silliness of this trial at Beacon is it just it makes it even more ridiculous how serious Dr. Pym is being about this and Mary seems like a very logical wonderful reasonable woman so if she's not I don't know for me that was the biggest evidence the first time I read this I was like if she's not disturbed by this yeah. then there's got to be some joke here or there's got to be some explanation yeah. that we just aren't privy to yet, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, you asked earlier about what I thought about holding the trial in the house, and I will say that I did completely agree with Michael Moon when he said that um, a man can't tell the truth in public nowadays, but he can still tell it in private. He can tell it inside the house. <sighs> that line I thought that is was so good. good. I was thinking, I mean, this is, you know, Chesterton back in the, what, 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and I'm thinking of the age of social media today. It's almost impossible to tell the truth in public. Like there's always some angle. There's always some 
you know, uh, PR campaign, you know, that you're trying to satisfy. And it's like when you're alone in a house with your friends, like there's no pretense. You have to actually just come out with it, you know? Yeah. Like what's the reality? Yeah. I feel like alone with friends or family is the only time where I feel completely, um, unhindered in Mm -hmm. saying what I want to say and thinking Mm -hmm. what I want to think. Whereas uh, I feel like everything is so, and we've kind of touched on this previously, but everything is so sensitive Mm -hmm. in the world today that it's like, am I going to offend people who love dogs if I say X? (laughs) Am I going to offend people who, you know, I don't know. It's just, it, it's really hard to honestly be yourself in public, which is part of why it's hard to be a Christian because a lot of people find science to be more reasonable than faith and they can't see how interwoven those two things are and so like expressing faith in public seems silly to a lot of people I think yeah yeah um it's like oh that's nice (laughs) yeah it was like it was funny though like kind of getting at the the seriousness of this whole situation. Like there's some, there's like some philosophical something that's very serious here that Michael is taking very seriously, but the Mm -hmm. way that he's taking it seriously is to be kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me, have you seen miracle on 34th street? Yes. I love that movie. Okay. So he reminds me of the lawyer in that where he decides Uh, he's like, I don't get this. This is crazy. But this dude believes he's Santa Claus and like, by golly, so do I, (laughs) you know? And he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to defend him and I'm going to come up with all kinds of creative ways to like trick the court, like whatever, to like get them to see like that they have to say that he's Santa Claus, you know, no matter what he doesn't understand, he knows that he doesn't deserve to go to prison. Exactly. Yeah, it's the same yeah. kind of like thought. That, I don't yeah, know. that's a really good parallel. I didn't think of Miracle on 34th Street. That's awesome. Yeah. Um. So I guess we, I mean, we're sort of coming to the end of the chapter, but are th- is there any other point that you want to draw on before we wrap it up? I just mentioned the um, timely entrance of Moses Gould who I completely <laughs> forgot about at this point. And then when he strolls back into the scene, I just like died laughing. <laughs> yeah. He's just yeah. so ridiculous. And you can hear Chesterton's so good about writing his like Cockney accent or whatever. Yes. <laughs> you can just like hear it. And, uh, Oh, just like all of his, his quotes, all of his little, uh, little one liners and stuff that he says, it's just, it's like just enough like oomph that Michael needs to just like win the argument and like mm-hmm. lead everyone into the house you know yeah um yeah it it brings it brings back like the lightheartedness from someone other than innocent which was needed at this moment yeah Yeah. like you said things start to like gain momentum again and now we're kind of picking back up into the lighthearted um understanding or or feeling of the environment yeah I like the quote from, and this is on a slightly different note, but I like the quote from Michael just at the end on page 87. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes, uh, Arthur, I began with an intuition, but now I am sure. You and I are going to defend this friend of yours before the blessed court of Beacon and to clear him too. Clear him of both crime and lunacy. Just listen to me while I preach to you for a bit. And then they walk together and they're mm-hmm. talking. And mm-hmm. um, that is just like a beautiful a beautiful um statement and uh expression of what Michael is becoming as yes. his own character like he has changed mm-hmm. from chapter 1 to chapter 5 mm-hmm. this is a different Michael who he cares about different things mm-hmm. than he did before and he's like doing something for the sake of another person. Right. But he's also really going to enjoy it because this right. is his talent speaking yeah. to people, you know? Yeah. So it's funny because I kind of see it as like, okay, if Innocent Smith is the teacher and Michael is the pupil, it's like, okay, are, if you're if you're a really good teacher, you're not only going to impart knowledge to someone, you're going to then inspire them to go and actually apply the knowledge in their own life and in their own way. Mm-hmm. So the first part of what we've read so far is Innocent Smith sort of like, 
um, giving him an example of how to live possibly. Right. And then you have Michael kind of taking it in and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the moment when he snaps to attention at the garden gate, I think it's the moment where he decides like, okay, now we're going to apply everything that we've learned. (laughs) And he's just like, we're going to go for this now. And Innocent Smith is like, the student is now the master. Nodding along like, yeah, go, go, go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I guess just one other thing that I laughed at heartily and would like to mention before Mm -hmm. the end is, um, uh, Arthur shouting out, who are you? Uh, who's there? Who are you? Are you innocent? At the end, he hears somebody moving about in the bushes. They're out in the garden still. And, uh, the voice says, not quite. I cheated you once about a pen knife. (laughs) And it just, it's, This book is so silly. He's so honest. And it's so silly. Like you can't help. But I like I really hope people take the time to sit and read this or listen to it because you will laugh throughout. There are just these little very human quips throughout that Mm -hmm. are so Chesterton. And he's so funny. Yeah. That that really made me giggle at the end. Yeah. I did want to point out one thing in Michael Moon's speech to Inglewood about trying to convince him like why he thinks they should go and defend oh, sure. innocent yeah um he says innocent smith is not a madman he is a ritualist he wants to express himself not with his tongue but with his arms and legs with my body i thee worship as it says in the marriage service mm-hmm. i begin to understand the old plays and pa- pageants i see why the mutes at a funeral were mute i see why the m- mummers were mum they meant something and Smith means something too. Mm. All other jokes have to be noisy, like little nosy Gould's jokes, for instance. The only silent jokes are the practical jokes. Poor Smith, properly considered, is an allegorical practical joker. What he has really done in this house has been as frantic as a war dance, but silent as a picture. Mm. Um, and it was really crazy when I, one of the times I was reading through this and I was as preparing for this, um, for this podcast, I had just listened to another podcast from Catholic Stuff You Should Know that same day. And they did this whole episode on what if you were um, watching all of the sacraments happen with no sound? What would you think was happening? Like if you were some random person who didn't know anything about the sacraments and you were watching them happen, um, what would you think they were? And they had this whole conversation about like all the different rites and all the different things that we do, um, celebration of the faith. And it was really cool because the point that they drew out was that it's very obvious what's happening in all the sacraments. If you kind of think about it and you may not know about like the spiritual, you know, whatever about it, but at the same time, there's something very clear, about the motions that we do when we celebrate them, you know, with baptism, right. Going down into water, what is happening? This person is being dipped into water and brought back up. And then there's like, you know, the physical signs to put on and like, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, there's something that it has meaning and it, and Mm. like the sign itself is what is communicating that or whatever. Mm. And so it's like, you don't even need the words sometimes like, because you can just see how, sacramental it is you know like you can see how how real it is anyway I just thought that was a really cool connection that I had happened to be listening to that when I read that passage totally well and that's like so it's so basic like I hate to even say what I'm about to say but actions speak louder than words yeah like you can (laughs) say up and (laughs) down things that you believe or things that you'll do or things that you are but until you actually live them and like show that you're going to do what you say you're going to do people don't believe you yeah it's yeah Yeah. that's really interesting and like innocent up until this point has mainly moved like in action he's shown his love to the people in this house and his care for them that's exactly what michael says in argument he's like look he's only said a couple of words that were kind of strung together randomly and like and everything else he's a man of action you know yeah and that's what he respects Beautiful. about him. Oh, and his real name is Man Alive. Yes. What the heck? That was yeah. so good at the end. That that's is right. really good. That's right. Yep. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's my real name. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So there's well, the clue. There's the clue for the rest of the book, I think. Yeah. And it's going to get really... 
I don't know what the word I'm I'm looking for, but the trial is long. Uh-huh. Um, it's a long part portion of the book. So um, Grace and I will talk about how we'll tackle that. But um, as usual, we encourage you to read it beforehand because yes. it will really help you to understand the conversation more. Um, so wonderful. Um, did you have any practical takeaways that you wanted to share with everybody? Um, I don't know. I just, I had two thoughts. One was just going off of the whole, um, just taking the scientists at their word. You know what I mean? Um, kind of thing. The, and I don't mean this just like scientists, but I mean, there's a lot of people out there claiming to be experts about stuff these days, you know? Yeah. And, and maybe they are, you know, and maybe they actually do have good qualifications and whatever else. But, um, but I think that we should probably question things and not assume really that anything is just to be taken at face value. Um, yeah, I think there's probably, there's more to be thought about in a lot of circumstances. And also, I was thinking just to look for deeper meanings in what people do and what people say and just kind of like sit back like Michael Moon and actually listen and actually watch before you decide to jump to action or jump to conclusions. Um, I think just in everyday life, we could learn a lot more and experience uh, a lot more good if we were waiting and watching and listening more than reacting. That's very good advice. Some of the best advice my mom ever gave me, and she gave it to me recently because of all the doctor's appointments I've been having. Mm. She said the best thing that you can do if you're not sure about something or you just want to research it more or you want a second opinion from another doctor about it is just to say, not today, I'm going to think about it. It's like, why don't we approach more things in life like that? You know, yeah. not today. We've, I got to think about this more. There's just so much pressure. You know, we feel so much pressure, I think, to just always instantaneous. have an instantaneous. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's a, a product of the information age, you know, that yeah. we feel like we should be able to have a, an answer immediately. You know, let yeah. me just Google it real quick, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, that would be my advice is to take my mom's advice and just take your time with things and don't feel bad at all if you don't know today. Just... Mm-hmm. Feel free to take your sweet time thinking about things and deciding about things and enjoy your life more like that, too. Um, That reminded me very quickly. That reminded me of Treebeard from Lord of the Rings. Oh, (laughs) how they take so long to make decisions. I love it. I I love the Ents. They're the best. They're my favorite characters in Lord of the Rings. They're wonderful. I have a lot of favorites, but I love the Ents. The Ents are some of my favorites, too. Yeah. Um, So... Uh, I'm going to share my gratitude <laughs> journal for it. Um, really quick. I am going to get to see a dear, dear friend that I went to college with um, in Texas in about a week. And um, we like some of the best times of my life. And I'm not exaggerating. Just Aww. like some of the most fun and best times of my life have been with her. Aww. Sarah, I love you. And um we just like had we had so many nights where we would go to stepping and yeah, both of us love so country fun. music and we love to dance and i recently found this playlist on spotify of country music that is like our favorite music from the last 30 to 40 years it's like <laughs> just a playlist of like great country music from the last 30ish years That's and awesome. um it just like has brought back so many memories of her and us living together. And um, I'm just getting really exci- excited to see her again and to be back in the great state of Texas. And um, <laughs> you're going to be so, so close to yeah. me. <laughs> I know. So close. And yet <laughs> just so way far. over the border. Right. I know. But what Aww. what were you grateful for this week? Honestly, I mean, I already talked about my gratitude for Lord of the Rings. But yes. um, but I think in the midst of that, also just the practical just being able to be taken care of so quickly and efficiently. Like I think Mm. I I've experienced times where I felt really alone and like not really knowing what to do when I've been in pain. And this time it was like, I told somebody I was in pain. It was like this person that I teach RCIA with. And he was like, he's like a physician's assistant or something. And he was like, 
wait, I have a really good friend. Um, he's a great Christian guy. He's a physical therapist. Like I can Aww. get you in tomorrow. Just tell me, just say the word. And I'm like, so I, I waited till the next day and I was still in a lot of pain. And I was like, okay, I think I need to go to physical therapy. And he's like, I've got you. I've got you. And like an hour later I had an appointment and like, so I mean, great. it was so great because I just feel like it's so hard sometimes to get into doctors and to like, it's mm-hmm. like by the time you finally get in, you sometimes progress. they schedule you a month later. Right. Yeah. And I knew yeah. that it was going to take forever for me to get into my orthopedist. So I just wanted to be able to go straight to PT and it was really great um, that that was able to happen. And so because of that, um, they were able to kind of get at it quick and I don't know, just, I had so many friends that offered to like come over and help me with, you know, just like, house things like things I can't lift like laundry yeah. and cooking yeah. and you know just sweet things people. like that I know and I just I felt very um cared for mm. even and especially now that I live alone yeah. um because the last couple times that this has happened to me I haven't lived alone I've been with people when it's happened and so yeah. it was sort of a built-in support system but this was the first time that I experienced um debilitating pain without anyone God bless me. your friends. So praise God. That's, I'm yeah. very grateful for all God of that. God is good. Beautiful. Okay. Well, next week we're into book two yep. of Man Alive. Um, chapter Buckle one. Up, the Eye of Death or the Murder Charge. Um, and uh, we're really excited to talk about it. Um, you can find us on Instagram at Pints with Chesterton. Our website is pintswithchesterton.com. Our email is pintswithchesterton at gmail.com, and we love to hear from you guys. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>